0: Hello to all of you. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, and welcome to our podcast, which we're calling TMI. It's the motivation inside. I hope you've been enjoying this weekly podcast. Our goal is doing them to give you a glimpse inside how things really work professionally and personally. I'll share with you the many faces of success and wealth. And again, I'm trying to teach everybody about how we all got here, uh, the pluses and minuses, the strengths and weaknesses. It's important that we understand that there's greatness inside all of us. It takes a lot of hard work and intense focus to achieve success. And boy, do we know the road is winding. But the possibilities are there for everybody. And so one of the things about these segments is we're really trying to bring people into the real story. I hate the sort of sanitized success stories uh, because all they do is uh, it's like a self glorification for a narcissist as opposed to really explaining to people what happens in life. Uh, This is a place to ask us anything. You can share with me or or my staff here any of your wild and crazy stories, your weaknesses, your strengths, anything. Ideas for the show, for the program, that would be great. You can email us at podcasts at skybridgeinsights.com. Again, I'm the founder of a $12 billion global investment firm called Skybridge Capital. I've been blessed with the opportunity to be a Fox News and Fox business contributor. I happen to host a show. Uh, It's the iconic TV program from yesteryear called Wall Street Week. I host it with my grandfather, Gary Kaminsky. I'm sorry, one of my best friends, Gary Kaminsky. Hopefully Gary's listening and he's got his middle finger up somewhere. Uh, It's on the Fox Business Network Friday night at 8 p.m. We also run a replay of that at 9 a.m. on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, I've written two books, A Little Book of Hedge Funds and Goodbye, Gordon Gecko. Uh, my third book is coming out October the 24th. Uh, the name of it is Hopping Over the Rabbit Hole How Entrepreneurs Turn Failure into Success. And so basically, it's about a 200 page book on the trials and tribulations of SkyBridge and how we got through the financial crisis. Uh, but some real stories in there about some pain and desperation during that period of time. Again, for first time listeners, I'm not the typical Wall Street guy. I try to bring on some fun and interesting guests. I've, I brought, home, I, I brought back some of my neighborhood friends, uh, my colleagues from Goldman, my old boss from Goldman. Uh, today, I've got a very interesting guest, someone who tortured me as a kid, and so we'll talk a little bit about that. You deserved it. Yeah. Yeah, I deserved it. <laughs> um, some of you, uh, I think you can relate to this stuff. Uh, since we're periscoping this live right now, I am in my cargo shorts. That's how I usually like to dress, although this morning when I did Stuart Varney, I had a stupid uh, expensive suit on. What you may not know is that I'm someone that prides myself in being a risk taker on both people and ideas, and that's something that we're often talking about here uh, on this show. Today, I want to talk about family, love, kindness, heart, soul. It's not the Wizard of Oz. It's a personal podcast. I brought my older brother, my only brother, my older brother, uh, the uh, one and only David Scaramucci. I've taken a few beatings from him, although... The last fight, he stopped fighting with me after I choked him with the uh, the dog collar from my uh, the, right. the choker leash, but mm-hmm. we can talk about anything you want, okay? So David, welcome to TMI. Oh,
1: it's great to be here. It's an honor to be here on the show with you, and uh, you know I'm excited to talk about my life a little bit.
0: All right, so the first thing I want to talk about is a little bit of the family of origin, about how we had a pretty tough father, and uh, you were a little bit faster than me, a little bit stronger than me when we were kids, and so... I was the one who was getting whacked around because by the time... I got got to the steps first. The move was he'd throw me on the ground. My father would take out whatever he was doing on me. He would be running up the steps and make it into the bedroom. Uh, And then by that time, he was already exhausted. Is that a good characterization? That's a very
1: good characterization. (laughs) I used to beat you to the stairs and uh, he would whack you and I would yell (laughs) like I was getting hit. Ow! Yeah. And by the time we got to the bedroom, then he'd smash in the door, we'd both get
0: whacked. All right, so you, know, you, you were a lot to live up to as a kid because I remember you graduating fourth in high school. Is that true?
1: That is true. Yeah. 17, that was my peak.
0: You, 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 uh, you, you also were a little bit of an instigator when you, when you were, were a kid. I mean, there was no doubt about that. You got me thrown out of school, so I want to tell that story. See, look, he's looking at me confused. He doesn't remember the story. So Here's your version of it, But okay. I have a hard time defending. Okay, so but no, no, but this is a true story, okay? So there was a kid in a school. He basically was coming through the, the, uh, the door, uh, and he slammed the door, and he broke the glass. It was like that, like, shadowproof glass. The glass cracked on the door, and I was like the vice president of the high school at the time. I said, hey, what are you doing? And then the kid pushed me, he was coming into the school to pick me up. You were already in college. You don't remember the story, huh? No. <laughs> and then you told me if I didn't go back there and hit him that I was a complete pussy. You don't remember this whole thing?
1: I remember parts of it.
0: <laughs> okay, so I went back there. I got I got the guy on the ground. I, I beat the living you-know-what out of him. And then about two hours later, I was in the principal's office waiting for my parents and waiting for Artie's parents to show up. But anyway, you did you were an instigator as well. So so what what, what do you remember... What's your version of growing up?
1: Yeah, I like to just, you know, I think each kid, when you grow up in a house with two or three or four kids, each kid has their own experience of exactly what happened in that house. And, you know, my, as the older, uh, you know, son in that family, my experience was probably a little different than yours and different than Susan's. And, you know, I really looked to, there was a lot of stress in the house. There was a lot of arguing, there was a lot of stress, and I really looked to escape. And, you know, when I was seven, eight years old, it wasn't addiction or alcoholism. I just escaped through sports and being outside and school and things like that. But it was always, I was always trying to get out. And that's, you know, I mean, our parents, you know, they loved us to death. But I think they had a, a stressful marriage and the kids felt that stress.
0: All right. So that's a probably a common struggle for a lot of people in the United States, if not the world, right? But, sure.
1: Yeah, I think most marriages are tough. It takes a lot of work.
0: Okay, and so, and people handle it differently. There's no question about that. But I also think you think there's some relevance to birth order in life.
1: Probably, yeah. I'm sure. I'm not sure how the order exactly affects you, but I think the older kid in every family feels the brunt of the parents' pain, maybe first and the most. Mm-hmm. You know, it might be true. I think we all felt it in different ways. It all affected us in different ways. Mm-hmm. And uh, my way was my way.
0: Okay, so let's get to uh, uh, why you came in, because I think this is an important thing for many people in life. You have struggled with addiction since you were young. And so tell us a little bit about that and tell us where you are today.
1: Sure. So I'll tell you why I came in. You know, my daughter came home one day and she said, Dad, I've got this great internship with Uncle Anthony. I'm working with the great producer, Susan Krakauer. And I came up with this idea. They're doing podcasts every week about success and addiction. And I think it'd be great if you came in and told your story. And I said, Victoria, that'd be awesome. Because my story's out there. I'm pretty, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous is an anonymous thing. Most people want to keep their addiction to themselves or to their family. Mm -hmm. But I have found it's helped me the most by being out there with it. And I have a chance to help other people by telling my story and letting people know what I've been through. And in in a way, it's been a chance to help them.
0: Yeah, so... so But, you know, and I I want to state this because I think that what happens in our society is that there's a social stigma to addiction. Absolutely. And so people feel like they're embarrassed about it or that it's a uh, personal weakness. And so there's a ton of research on this stuff where some of it is actually genetic proclivity. Some of it is biological design. Some of it is, frankly, You know, the environment environment. Uh, But there's a there's a connection to all of these things It's not uh, a weakness. As an example, we had Harold Koplowitz on uh, this uh, podcast a few months back who runs the Child Mind Institute. And he said, you know, what's interesting is if uh, you die of cancer, uh, people will put in The New York Times a celebratory uh, quotation or some kind of advertisement celebrating your life. If you die of suicide, you have three of your friends, not five hundred of them that do that and so the suicide is a stigma, but the cancer isn't, and yet they're both diseases in in right. different ways you know one's a brain disease and one is a disease of your cellular activity so what's your thought on that okay so think- i i
1: yeah, I think there is a stigma to it, and I think it's important to overcome it and uh I like to sort of, I think the people listening today either are dealing with addiction themselves and are interested in this topic, or they've had a close family member or friend or someone they've known who's dealt with it, and they're looking for some insight. So I want to share a little bit the chronological order of my story and uh, just talk a little bit how it progressed and where it is and, and how you get better, because that's the bottom line. It's about getting better. So, you know, I went through high school, successful Tufts University successful and along the way I started to drink probably at 13 years old 14 years old and uh, by the time I got to college we were trying other drugs like pot and cocaine and you know different substances affect different people in different ways and some people like my friends who did it with me didn't get hooked and some did and over time um, you know the addiction got worse and worse, but I was always able to keep school and partying separate. So I did really well in school, an engineering program, a dean's list. So here's some of the success before the addiction overwhelmed me, because addiction will always overwhelm you. It will take and take and take from your life, and until you start to treat it is the only time you actually get better. So I went through school successful, partied on the weekends Then I went through graduate school, successful, partied on the weekends. Then I landed on Wall Street at age 25, trading a mortgage back.
0: Well, let's set the scene, though. This is the mid-'80s, and so this is 1987. Yeah, so this is the Oliver Stone, Wall Street era. This is the Bud Fox era. How do you do, Mr. Gickle? Bud Fox. There was a promiscuous use of— cocaine at that time on Wall Street. Maybe there is today, but I'm saying it certainly was then. It was out there. Yeah, so I just want to set the scene for people. Right, and
1: some people, I think a lot of people dabbled in that at the time and some people got hooked and some people didn't. But I was basically, got a lot of responsibility at a young age. I was making very good money and I was being asked to go out every night. All expenses paid. That's what Wall Street was like in the late 80s. It was Ranger Games, Spark Steakhouse. uh, You
0: know,
1: Bars at night, clubs.
0: Broadway, Broadway plays. Right. Yeah.
1: Everything paid for. And some people, I looked at that, it was like Candyland. I just went out and had a good time. It was work hard, play hard. And I was able to do that for a long time. And I created this facade of success where I was able to work hard, play hard, be successful, and I can't have a problem. I'm managing a $2 billion bond portfolio. I got a beautiful wife at home. I'm I'm starting a family. How could I have an addiction problem? hmm So I lied to myself for a long time that everything was under control. Mm -hmm. And slowly I was losing my grip on reality. So,
0: But but go back for a second, though. So where do you, you know, in your observation of this, where do you think your addiction comes from? Is it It environmental? Is it genetic? I think
1: it's a little bit of everything for everybody who has this problem. Genetics is definitely a factor. It's been proven over time. The environment was a factor. The time of life was a factor, the late 80s on Wall Street, you know. I mean, I think when our parents grew up, there wasn't a lot of drugs. It was just drinking and alcohol. Mm-hmm. And now our own kids are growing up with opiates. It's
0: way worse. Right, yeah. and
1: now it's painkillers and Vicodin and yeah. Percocet and mm-hmm. Oxycontin.
0: Yeah, and they want to start earlier, David. Right, yeah, and, and they're and, getting and addicted,
1: like- and they're getting physically addicted. So when they actually want to stop, unlike cocaine, where you could actually not have a physical addiction, it's a psychological addiction, they're having a hard time stopping, and they're getting to the point where they get sick unless they find so, the painkillers and opiates right, they look. So,
0: looking so, for. so define the struggle for us then. For myself? Yeah.
1: Yeah, the struggle is, is that you want to stop. You wake up every day, and you say, I don't want to do that anymore. I drank all night. I partied all night. I didn't sleep, and I'm done. I'm not going to do it again. And by 4 or 5 o'clock that day, you're doing it again and you lose the ability to say no and the ability to stop. Even though you have so many people in your life that you love, you have so much you're living for, Mm -hmm. the addiction overwhelms you, and it takes, and it takes, and it takes. Mm -hmm. So by my early 30s, it was out of control, and my life was falling apart. Mm -hmm. You know, I was married for about five years at the time. My wife, who's one of the greatest people in the world, thank God I met her. She basically couldn't take it anymore. I wasn't coming home at night. She didn't want to be with me. And she actually uh, at one point left and went back to live with her mother. And that was a point in time where I think I even came to you and I was like, I need some help, bro. Mm-hmm. Right. My life is out of control. My wife with my one-year-old daughter has left. Mm-hmm. So you and I took a little drive up to Conifer Park, upstate New yeah. York, my right. first rehab, 1995.
0: Yeah, September 8th, actually, You know, because you know I have that, Yes, yes. Whack. I got the
1: years, you got the dates.
0: <laughs> I got the wacko memory, but I I do remember that. It was like a like, nightmare. It was a nightmare. It was, a, it was you like, know, am I mean,
1: really yeah. living this life?
0: Yeah. yeah. You said that to me in the right. car. And actually. when I you got said, up there. You said to me, what the hell happened to me? Why am I doing this? Why am I here? And I remember, you probably don't remember this, but the guy, dri- the gri- the guy driving it's us. was in recovery. The guy driving us was in recovery. Yes. Do you remember that? And, and he, he goes, did. you
1: got some baggage yeah. you need to unload. Right.
0: That's what he said.
1: Make sure when you he get he up said, there, whatever, you unload
0: it. Whatever your emotional baggage. The guy driving the car was actually a right, He recovering. had some real sobriety. Yeah, yeah, and he said, listen, he says, uh, you're going through it right now. This is your first awareness that you got this problem, and make sure you unload the baggage, and don't leave I remember until, that. Don't leave until to you. You do remember that, right? I yeah, remember yeah. it. And then he drove me home after I dropped you off. So
1: I got up there. So that was
0: a 28-day program, 1995. Listen, you know, Anybody that has addiction in their family or an issue related to this, it is, you know, whether we like it or not, as human beings, we're a social organism. And so at the end of the day, we want the people around us to do well. This is, you know, not to always bring it back to politics, but the biggest thing that I'm upset about is the working class and the middle class is struggling in the country. and it's a responsibility for all of us to fix that. We have to fix that because you want everybody around you to do better. You don't want to be living in a bob-wired, uh, fenced encased McMansion while your fellow neighbors are suffering. And so when it's your brother, the pain is excruciating. And you know, when it's your sister-in-law, Who's been very good to your brother, and you love and care for? It's very painful, and when it's your goddaughter who worked here this summer, and she was one at the time, or maybe one I had, probably one. One. It. 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 it you know, you're devastated. I. I. I will say this, okay? I drove home with the guy uh, that radio car. I got into the house. I went into my basement, and I cried for three straight hours. So, because. I felt my brother's pain. I felt my parents' pain, and I wanted him to fix it, and I wanted him to heal. And, Frank, what do you want? You want you want the people around you to do well, and I wanted you to get better.
1: See, when you're in the throes of addiction, you become so self-centered and selfish in a way, and it's almost unavoidable for all addicts, that you don't realize. You know that the people around you are struggling with what's going on with you, but you don't realize how deep their pain is. You're dealing with your own pain so much you don't even realize how self-absorbed you've been, and how hurt you're hurting other people,
0: and for that I have a lot of regrets, and I'm really, really sorry. What, what, what do you, what do you think was the, uh, the separating moment between living that lifestyle that you described, and, okay, I got to get help, and I have to finish, like the awakening, the interventionary forces right. combined with your personality. What, what was, the me, ca- it was, what was the catalyst?
1: It was the loss of the greatest person in my life, my wife. She did not want to be with me anymore. Mm-hmm. She decided to leave the house. She was actually pregnant. We had a mm-hmm. one-year-old daughter, and, I remember and it too. was over. Right. And I was like, I don't want this to be over. I believed in my mind that I was still successful, that I had a family. I had a high-paying job. I paid all my bills. I kept my life running was hanging on by strings. Mm-hmm. And when she said, I'm done, I don't want to be part of this anymore, I said, No, no, no. I gotta get some help. Mm-hmm. I'm a good person. I'm just I'm not a bad person. I'm I'm sick, but I gotta get some help.
0: Okay. And so and so that that yeah, so my my you know, it's our parents had a tough time through that as well. Yeah, no, I'm sorry and, for that too. And, you know I caused mean, them a you know, lot of pain sister, during this but look, I mean, I think, I think it was important, I think what's unique about this particular podcast is that uh, this is real life, okay? And this is uh, what people deal with all over the place. I have a little brother. You remember Errol Smalls? The yeah, yeah. So I have a little brother that I've taken care of for the last 20 years. I mean, I helped him get through uh, high school and college, and he was over at my house, and I explained to him. He's living in the South Bronx, and I explained to him what was going on. He was like, Mooch, this happens to white people too? I said, no. well, what are you talking about? It happens to everybody. It's not just, it's not, no, black. It's not black or white. Addiction crosses all lines. Right. Okay. You know, I mean, my whole all thing is we're all economic. It's not a different race. We're all part of the human race, you know?
1: That's why I'm but, hoping this, this podcast will be helpful to people yeah, well, struggling with well, this. Well,
0: well, that's why we're doing it. I want to I wanna talk about a couple of things that I think are relevant to this, okay? When did you learn or have the self awareness that you had a disease?
1: You know, when you go to a rehab, and anybody who deals with addiction goes to rehab, you learn a lot about the disease. You learn about AA. I'm sure everybody's heard about AA, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: but only the people go there, you start to learn about what works in AA, a 12-step program, Mm -hmm. the things you have to do to get better, Mm -hmm. a sponsor, uh, attend meetings, work on the steps, do service. You had
0: from 1995 till when was your sobriety? It's about 2005. Okay, and then you had a relapse. Correct. Okay, what do you think triggered that relapse?
1: I think what happens to all addicts is when you stop doing things to make yourself better, you start to regress, and the minute you pick up again, if you decide to pick up, it's right where you left off. For all addicts, okay. So what? And did, it's always so worse. What, so but let's so be what specific, happened? we
0: stop going to meetings. Yes, you stop sponsoring people. You stop helping I have people. I've not ever
1: sponsored people. When I actually went at age thirty-three to a rehab and I got out. I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I, I, I had to even go through that. So let me go to meetings so I could be better and be, stay better. And I had a guy at my first meeting come up to me and say, you know, it's your first meeting. You probably need a sponsor. He gave me his business card. He said, call me every day. I'll sponsor you to you find someone you want, that you like. And a sponsor is a very individual thing. And I thanked the guy, and I appreciated it, but I never called I never had a sponsor that first day. I never worked on the steps. So, is, if,
0: is it fair to say there was a little bit of denial still Correct. going on? Correct. Even though you had gone through the rehab, in your own mind, in your own self reflection, you had some denial about what had happened.
1: Correct. And the success reinforced that I was okay, even right. though I wasn't. So, I got back in my life. We had Gabriella.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: A year and a half later, we had David. I had two more kids. I got my job back. I got up in front of everybody I worked with and said I was dealing with a substance problem. Everybody came over and patted me on the back. Welcome back, Mooch. It's good to have you back. Mm-hmm. I started trading my position. I got promoted. So I was like, do I really need AA? I got it all together, right? Right. So I slowly faded away. I was going to meetings five times a week, four, twice a month, once a month. Right. And so the By meetings year tapered eight, off. it was over. I didn't go anymore. I'm
0: fixed. I don't have anything to worry about anymore. Now, this is
1: very important for the addicts out there. You guys know who you are. The guys that stop going to meetings, stop working AA, the chance of relapse increases every day. And I have a lot of friends of mine in the program that deal with this. So once I stopped, I had no defense against picking up. I would go out with work people, go to bars, drink ginger ale, play darts, shoot pool, And go home, and I was okay for two years without AA, without anything.
0: So this is 2005 to 2007?
1: Right around there, yes. Okay,
0: so you relapsed again in 2007.
1: Right, but 2005, I relapsed. A young kid who was with one of my brokers busted out a little bit of cocaine. I tried it. It was off to the races. In three months, my life was out of control. Back to rehab.
0: So the decision to try it, though, you're saying had you done the maintenance of... If I was Alcohol, spiritually fit, or
1: if I was spiritually fit, I would have just passed. You would have said, "I probably I'm sorry. wouldn't have gone to bars." You don't want to go to bars when you're dealing with this problem, especially, you know, early on. And until you feel spiritually fit, until you've worked on yourself, you've worked on the steps, you're helping other people, you're doing service, then you could be anywhere. You know, I could be around drinking all the time. Drugs is another thing that I don't want to be around in my life. But I'm around people that drink every day. And now that I'm spiritually fit, I'm okay. But back then I was not. So I tried it again. I said, "It's been ten years. How bad could it be?" It was worse than ever. Right? Within a few months, my wife crying again. Back to rehab. And I was like, "Man, what?" You know, I brought pictures of my kids to rehab. They came to visit me. Mm-hmm. Eight, nine, ten years old. And yeah, no, I remember that. I'm sorry for that. My son no, going good. home crying in the back seat. My daughters. Shell shock.
0: Okay, so, so there's two years of sobriety. You're back in rehab October 2007?
1: October 2007 is my sup- current sobriety date. Yes. October 16, okay. yeah, 2007. So, so let's talk yeah. about that.
0: Right. Okay, so go ahead. So, so now yeah. you, you go back to rehab. So you're, you're, you come out in late right. October or mid-November. Right. Remember,
1: you were just getting this business started, I think. I was. The business right?
0: was two years old.
1: And I had my one year anniversary, and I said, "Bro, you got to come." And the world was coming to an end. It was October two thousand and eight, my one year anniversary. I remember, I remember he's that. like, "Bro, I don't know if Skybridge is going to be in business." No, I, I thought we were right? going to be out of business. I actually, said, "You got to, of- yeah. you got to come to my one year anniversary if you can, because I want to yeah. make some amends to you no, and I, tell you about my life." No, and he's like, "Bro, I can't make it." But you showed up at
0: my house. I did. Came at like afterwards. midnight. Yeah.
1: You know, exhausted like usual, came to my house. I did. And we hugged. I was
0: in a free fall panic here. Though mm-hmm. I remember exactly what was going on. The Bear Stearns had collapsed oh, and it was March of 2008 and they were selling Bear Stearns to J.P. Morgan and we were getting crushed in our portfolio and we were this tiny little firm. We were, you know, we were on the sixth floor in this building in a hedge fund cube. Skybridge right. Capital started in a hedge fund hotel cube, six carols, a couple of telephones and some computers. Right. And I was like, okay, this business is finished. And by September, I was absolutely confident that it was finished. And I was like, okay, how am I going to see? Yeah, that's what I write about in hopping over the rabbit hole.
1: And for me, you know, business was collapsing, Mm -hmm. but my life was actually starting to get better. Mm -hmm. So I started to join the no matter what club, like the world could come to an end. I could be financially bankrupt, but if I stay sober, my life's going to be okay.
0: So see that's an interesting perspective about expectation about your life though, too, right?
1: Because I knew that I, mean, I could handle something. anything if I stayed sober, and if I didn't, I could handle nothing. But isn't that a
0: big message for everybody? That's the biggest message I think is that lower your expectations. Okay, you don't have to be the Cosmo cover or the supermodel on Sports Illustrated or the six-pack on Men's Fitness with the perfect life. You know, I mean, the people that are, are striving for that are making a very big mistake for themselves. Same thing in our industry. Right. You know, you read about the ten or fifteen hedge fund billionaires, or maybe there's fifty of them but there's 200,000 people in our industry. Why don't you dial it back a little bit and relax, you know, and do the right thing for your customer. That's the thing you should be really focused on as opposed to what society ball you're attending. But I
1: want to share with the people listening, like what works and how you get better. Because I know people listening to this podcast are struggling and they have family members that are struggling. So what works? I found a great sponsor. You know, this buddy of mine, Harry, he got me in the no-matter-what club. I worked on the steps with him. I attended meetings. I sponsor other guys, and uh, I do some service, and I'm, I'm a big part of AA now. And when guys come to me with help, I, I actually get the Wall Street crowd. The Wall Street crowd, let's say the general population, 70%, are addicted. The Wall Street c- crowd is closer to 20 I would say, from my experience of 30 years on Wall Street.
0: Go go back and say that again 7
1: to 8%. 7 to 8% of the general population. Right.
0: So just think about it. If you're in an office of 1,000 people, there's probably 70 to 80 people in that office that could have a substance. So I'm on
1: a 100 person trading floor and it's Wall Street. I'm telling you, there's 20, 25 guys that got issues. 10 or 15 are in AA already. Some guys on that trading floor used to come up to me and say, hey, Mooch. You're going at it too hard. There's an easier, softer way to do this. And these were the guys in AA already. And now I'm one of those guys. But Wall Street, the addiction level is definitely higher for whatever reasons. Politics, too. The environment.
0: Yeah. You know, the
1: hard work, the hard play. So uh, these are the things that work now. I sponsor people. I love AA. I go out of my way when someone comes to me and asks for help. I've had fathers in Manhasset come to me with their kids. Kids attending different colleges who have needed help. I brought to AA meetings just to show them the other side of this. Like, when you're 17, 18 years old, you don't realize how bad this could go.
0: No, but it's also socially cool. You know, like, one of the things that I hate is this video game Grand Theft Auto because you're driving around in your car, and it's, like, socially cool, and there's a drug culture. That was the 80s. Yeah, and the rappers rappers talk about that. They think it's so cool. Like, what I can't stand about the high school and the town that we live in, Manhasset, is that these kids think it's cool to be doing this stuff. It's the totally opposite. It's completely uncool.
1: we're in our 50s. Those kids are not even 20 years old yet, so they don't see that.
0: No, I understand that. I mean, they won't see it unless they learn by themselves. But, like, if you could talk to the younger version of yourself... uh,
1: Yes, I wish I could.
0: Yeah, so what would you say? You meet up with the younger version of yourself. It's 1987.
1: I would say to myself, listen, you got to really great chance to have an unbelievable life, and if you go down this path of drinking and drugging, it's going to mess up you and everybody that loves you and cares about you, and you got to stop hurting yourself and stop hurting the people around you. You're going to meet great people who are going to love you a lot, and when they find out what happens to you at age 33, you're going to cause them tremendous pain, and you're going to take a detour in your life that you might never recover from. Mm -hmm. And it, it's jails, institutions, and death with addiction.
0: And you've always said that to me. It's, it's, want, it's want, sober up. I want, I want you to... Re-
1: sober up or get covered up or locked
0: up. That's all it is. Okay, so I want you to repeat that because I think it's important for people that if you have a problem and we have to talk about the hope of this whole thing too because I think this is one of the things that's so inspiring to me about your life. Okay, and you've said this to me more than one time. So you can dust yourself mm-hmm. off, pick yourself up, tomorrow's another day and the sun's coming up and you can create tomorrow. You remember you've said to me many times the, the attempt to change your path or to create a perfect past. What Give, you,
1: abandon whole, all hope for a perfect
0: past. Yeah, abandon all hope for a perfect past. And whatever happened, happened. But let's get, get up tomorrow morning and focus on the positives right. that you can create in the future. I've seen but,
1: so many success stories but, in AA. But Guys I crawling out of cardboard boxes that have turned their lives around, mm-hmm. living under bridges in the pouring rain. Mm-hmm. I mean, you people know who you are. You know, I was on my way to becoming one of those people. I was going to lose everything. You know, you were going to spend part of your life trying to help me. I did. And then you would finally would give up because the, the real people who love you at some point have to do tough love and say, that is enough. Yeah. I can't let you hurt me anymore.
0: Yeah, for Italians, that's like way longer. Trust me. Okay? Right, no, I understand that. Forever. So, so, but I forever. So, but I want to go back to something you said because I think it's important to repeat. If you have an addiction problem, And you don't address it. There's there's only three ways it's going to end. Jails. Here's how it's going to end
1: for you. And it's going to take, it takes a different amount of time for everyone. I sponsored a kid for four days. He was 26. He OD'd in his parents' basement in 26. I remember that. Some people deal with alcohol for 40 years Mm -hmm. and die from cirrhosis of the liver. But if you do not get this problem in check, you will go to jail. DWIs, accidents, things will happen to you. We'll do jail time. You will spend time in an institution if you stay alive. Now that, Sometimes you don't just OD. You don't just die from having a drink. Mm-hmm. You crack up your car, you kill somebody else. Mm-hmm. Some people take innocent lives and spend the rest of their lives in jail. So it's a terrible disease that can get out of control. Now, my own children and my own son would say to me, Dad, just because you had a problem doesn't mean everybody's going to have a problem. And he's absolutely right. I drank and partied with some of the biggest parties in the world. Not everyone's going to have a problem. But if you, I would say to the young kids today, if you're at a party, you're 17, you're 18, you're 20 years old, the people who are passing out, the people who are throwing up, the people who are blacking out, can't remember what happened the night before, these are the people most likely to have a problem later in life. And I think if you look back at me at 20, at Tufts University, the way I partied, the way I drank, it was a group of, like, five, seven guys. One or two of these guys are going to have a problem, and I was at the top of that list. So, like, I would just say for the young people, be aware of your friends. You know your friends are the ones who can't handle it, the ones who are passing out, the ones who are throwing up, the ones who are having trouble with their parents, with the law, with, with school. These are the people most likely
0: to need AA. But there is a way out. Well, Susan's asking me to you want me to address how it's affected me in my life. How did it hurt you, bro? Oh, it's devastating. I mean, you can't describe the feeling that you have. You know, I don't want to over-dramatize it, but it's devastating. You want the people in your family to do well. Uh, there's no question about that. It's excruciatingly painful. I can remember, uh, you know, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, I remember being a freshman at Tufts. Okay, so, so listen, we grew up in a neighborhood where there was a lot of drug use, okay, and for whatever reason... I made the decision not to go in that direction. Okay. And these guys used to tease my ass and call me Moses and all kinds of shit. True. Was, when, it's all true. Right. But you made a
1: good decision back then. Well, and but, I told Susan about you at Tuss <clears throat> that I would drink and smoke a little pot and try other things. And you were like, no way.
0: I said, a just beer or me. two, and that's it. I'd have one or two beers, and I wouldn't do it. Because it wasn't, first of all, I probably got more hungover than him. I think physiologically, maybe it affected me differently. But also, additionally, I figured I'm so amped up and so crazy anyway, could you imagine me on that stuff it would be really bad. So see, so I made the decision not to go in that direction, but I remember telling him to cut it out and I remember him getting wicked mad at me. Like who am I to tell him what to do and him telling me well, that, that was
1: leaving was, later in life. Yeah, you know, but he, was, like,
0: he was totally in check and that who was I to tell right. him what but to remember, do? Remember, I
1: had tremendous tolerance. I could drink well, that's and it.
0: party and get on the Dean's list.
1: I'm and pass engineering classes and be at mm-hmm. the top of my class and deal with the hangovers. Yeah. Somehow I had tremendous tolerance. See, I don't for think
0: it. I had the same physicality as you, just genetic. Even though we're mm-hmm. brothers, I think my. Yeah, physicality but obviously, was I I, I, obviously, I couldn't handle it. Obviously, I couldn't. I, handle I, I have two, three drinks. I'm lit, and then I'm uh, hung over the next day. So it's not even worth it. But, but that's the point, okay? And this is something I've talked to Rebecca about, David's wife. Okay, the pain is extraordinary, and so people that are dealing with. Alcoholism or addiction in their family. Even the people that are quote unquote sober are in the loop. They're somehow being impacted by this, and they're they've got they've got their own issues that they have to deal with in terms of helping the person that has sobriety uh, need, and but also dealing with the stress related to it. You know, right? And it's only there's only so much the family can but it, do. But but here's something I would say, okay, and something you've taught me, and so I'll share this with people, okay. The number one thing that I see and the thing I admire the most about people uh, is the whole concept of forgiveness, and it's something that Winston Churchill said that I repeat all the time here at Skybridge and sometimes when I'm public speaking. Uh, Churchill once said that the best among us choose not to judge human frailty so harshly meaning that if people have frailty or they have problems in their life or they don't reach a standard of perfection, like I hate perfectionists because perfectionism is another ism, like workaholism or drug addiction or whatever you want to call it, because at the end of the day, for perfectionism, people drive themselves crazy in the perfectionist category, and then they get sanctimonious and righteous and judgmental about other people. You know what ism
1: stands for, right? Tell me. I self
0: me. I self me. Yeah, there you go. Listen, I will will say this, that a path to sobriety that you have really practiced, knock on wood, since 2007, 2007, October. October
1: 16th will be nine years. Right. Right. Hallelujah.
0: Thank God, okay, and I pray for you every day, you know, because at the end of the day, I still have that religious belief and spirituality component, and so you're in my prayers every day, and you have helped me in my life because the compartmentalization of life is super important for people, because at the end of the day, if you're overthinking about your future, you get filled with anxiety because you're uncertain about what's gonna happen in the future. If you're thinking too much about your past, this is from Lao Tzu, the Chinese philosopher, too much about your past, well, then you're overwhelmed with regret. Who in our lives can we honestly look to and say I've had a perfect past and everything's gone perfectly in their lives? Those are the mendacious people in our lives. And so if you're looking back on your life with regret, you're filled with some level of depression. And if you're looking too far into the future and worried about outcomes, you're filled with anxiety. And so one of the things you've taught me is to take one day at a time. That's the only way you can live And it. to be in the present and to live your life for today. And what are we doing today that's going to make us a better person? Or what are we going to do today? Make the people around us better. And so with that, let's talk about a day in the life of... Your sobriety, David. Well, what is that like? Sure. You
1: no, know, a typical day in the life for me is uh, right now. I I go to you know four meetings a week. You know, I go to a, like a Tuesday, a Friday, a Sunday, sometimes a Monday night. Um, I've got good AA friends that I do anniversaries dinners with. But you know, basically, a day in my life involves I'm up at five o'clock. I don't sleep well. I'm at the gym. Your driver, John, sees me at the diner in the morning. Starbucks. Right. (laughs) right. (laughs) I mean, we're up at 5 o'clock. You know, you don't sleep. I don't sleep either for different reasons. But I go to the gym. I'm I'm at my desk at 7. You know, I'm running my little hedge fund. And uh, sometimes it's busy, which I enjoy. Like lately, it's been busy. There's been a lot of deal flow, and it's good. In the afternoons, I'm trying to do something constructive for myself. Sometimes I'm with my friends. Sometimes I'm golfing, whatever I'm doing. Sometimes when my kids were around, I'd be going to their games. And at night, I always make time, what meeting am I going to go to that day? Is this a day that I go to meetings? I'm going to call three alcoholics every single day of my life until I get to my grave. I'm going to speak to them about their lives, and I'm going to tell them a little bit about mine. Because the only thing that works with this problem is is an alcoholic sharing it with another alcoholic. Mm -hmm. So the loving family that cares, who wants to help and like tell you to snap out of it yeah it's not possible they but they, they can't they don't, they don't have know the how
0: empathy. to they don't have the direct experience in and the they disease can't relate unless they have the disease i agree with that there's right. a human connection to it right. the they
1: thing. can't relate mm-hmm. so you know i i have to spend every day and i speak to alcoholics you know a lot it's it, guys i like and respect and i try to help i sponsor three guys now you know a couple of guy in port washington a guy in manhasset Try to talk to them about their lives. I've worked on the steps with these guys. It is a 12 step program. And, you know, admitting we were powerless over alcohol and our lives have become imaginable. That is step one to admit you're powerless, that if you have that first drink, one is too many and a thousand never enough. Once you have that first drink, you have no defense. And your life will become unmanageable. And to realize, I thought my life was manageable. You saw it. I had the nice little comfort life in Manhasset with the three kids and the and the nice wife.
0: Dude, in the mid nineties, and I the, used the fun to stuff. You. But I used to meet you on the train, the six eighteen train out of Manhasset. and I get on a train. I'd have the newspapers with me. I turned to you. You were sound asleep next to me because I hadn't slept. Yeah, so I said, right, sometimes, sometimes I hadn't slept for three days. So I said, "What the hell's going on?" Right. You know, I remember that. You know, and sometimes I, I thinking, hadn't slept right, for you know, three days. Well. I want to end this on a very positive note and a spiritual note, okay, because I do believe that there is some intercession here, and I want to, I want you to relate to people how they can find themselves. If they're in need of recovery or they're in recovery, um, how do you find yourself? How do you create a path for yourself to recovery? Uh, and how do you stay in recovery?
1: Right, okay, so I think the first thing for someone struggling with this problem is to know... That they want to stop. The person who says, I want to stop every single day but cannot stop, probably has the problem. And they need to make an attempt to go to an AA meeting. They need to find someone they know, someone they trust who's in AA or knows somebody in AA, to take them to that first meeting. It's a scary thing. You go in, Basically, all the churches in this entire country at night sponsor Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, and they're basically places for people to go and get help. You got to walk through the door, go down those steps, mm-hmm. and put your hand up and say, Hey, I'm David. I'm an alcoholic. And I'm here to listen. And once you make that step, right. you will hear things that you will be able to relate to, relate to in your heart and in your soul David, to you help you get better.
0: Do you think that some people feel shame in the process? Well, absolutely. And so that's why they absolutely. have a hard time. I felt that shame door,
1: right? with that. You know, I yeah. was like, I always felt too successful. I did not want to... You know, I know I hurt mom and dad in a big way, and I didn't want to hurt them and my poor wife and my kids who were young at the time. And yourself. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to create shame for the family. This is such a shameful disease. But I've come so far past it. Mm-hmm. So far past Now it's about well, trying to save lives, well, including what I my give, own.
0: What I give How my, could I have shame now? Well, I give my goddaughter a lot of credit for Your oldest child. Oh, she's a special. Is suggesting this because at the end of the day it it takes a lot of courage to be here and it takes a lot of courage to relate your story, but also you know, in the process of it probably being therapeutic for you it is beneficial to other people because other people can like, it's a beacon for other people I'm
1: hoping I can help someone who I don't even know, someone who's listening to this in in
0: Florida 100% 100%, one person listens to this and says hey, you know what, I gotta put down that extra drink, and i got to focus on my family and try to get myself out. So listen, go online. Here's
1: how you do it. You go online. Alcoholics Anonymous. You you look for a meeting in your area. There will be a meeting within two miles of where you live every single day. It'll be in the morning. There's an early cup meeting in Manhasset at Shelter Rock Church. There's a night meeting at St. Stephen's in Port Washington. Methodist. There'll be a meeting within two miles of where you live. Walk through that door. Sit down you know, take the cotton out of your mouth and listen.
0: All right, it's very right? powerful stuff, bro. I give you a lot of credit for being here and uh, the courage. I wanted and, to share. And you've been a role model for me in a lot of ways. You've been an inspiration to me and to other people. Uh, so I want to thank my brother David Scaramucci for joining us today. Uh, and I want to say, listen, man, I'm 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 very proud of what you've done for I'm yourself. proud of you
1: bro I'm proud of you for both. I'm glad to be here okay no, so with that you course. can
0: you can follow me on Twitter you can't follow David on Twitter because he isn't on Twitter. Please feel free to email me, Anthony Scaramucci podcast at, at SkybridgeInsights if you have ideas for the show. Uh, don't forget to watch Wall Street Week. And please, even if you're not watching Wall Street Week, put it on in your spare bedroom. I, we still get credit for the ratings, and we got to get keep these ratings going in the direction that they're going in. It's on Fox Business, Friday nights at 8 p.m., Saturday mornings, 9 a.m., Sunday at 9 a.m., Wall Street Week. Those are the replays. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast. Go rate and review it so we can continue to bring you the content that matters. Thank you, and have a prosperous week.